class um, in our sort of part two time through the book of Exodus. We did part one last year. Now we're doing part two, um, beginning in Exodus 19, going through the end of the book. Um, we'll be here um, through for the next couple months. And um, just wanted to say a few things here at the beginning before we actually dive into our text for today. Number one is, don't forget, young people, that this is your Sunday school class, too. So you should always feel free, especially since this is going to be a discussion class. You should always feel free to ask questions or to speak up when I'm asking things. And to facilitate all of us hearing each other, and including those who are um, with us on the live stream or listening later, we have the roving mic. <laughs> so, Super important. Thank you for that. And I know it's new and different. We'll figure it out. We'll get there. Um, Second thing I wanted to just ask us is, what is the goal? What is the goal of interpretation? Why? Like when we open our Bibles together, as we'll do in just a moment, what are we seeking? This is a just sort of basic review question, but very, very important question. What are we seeking in interpreting the Bible, Dan? Will. Seeking God's will. Okay. Good. So we want to know what he wants of us, right? Good. <laughs> well, I think we're also thinking about how to find Christ in those places. Is Excellent. that right? Excellent. Yeah, we're, that. We are looking for Christ. In fact, that is not an intuitive thing. Um, for many people opening their Old Testaments, they can often think, um, you know, Old Testament, that's before Jesus, so obviously that's not about him. Well, actually, Jesus, the author of the Old Testament, the ultimate author, as we know from 1 Peter 1, when it says that the Spirit of Christ was in the prophets, indicating to the prophets, and here we're speaking about the entire Old Testament, um, the glory of Jesus, um, the sufferings of Christ, and the glories to follow. He himself, the author, Jesus, tells us that everything... And all the books of the Old Testament are about him, Luke 24. So we definitely should be looking for Christ. Now, how we look for him um, needs to be sensitive to what the, the text is saying, and we'll learn how to do that with practice. But excellent. Other thoughts? What, what are we seeking when we open the book? Yes. Good. Yeah, the author's intent in the correct context. Now, here's where things get really interesting, right? Because which author, right? Um, if if we limit, um, if we limit our what we're seeking to what the human author knew, or what the human audience, initial human original audience, um, could have known. What might, what might be drawbacks of that? Uh, 
We'll be missing a lot of information. <laughs> yes, to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, then we're going to start filtering it through um, the information, like the cult, their culture. Mm -hmm. And so then we'll think, well, that was their culture. Let's filter it through our culture now. Um, yeah. Good, and it's important to know that these, these books are written, obviously, in an ancient language to an ancient culture with lots of ancient cultural assumptions. And when we really get into those original assumptions, we, we can start to unlock things that are very puzzling. Um, but at the same time, we want to remember that um, these things were written for our instruction, that through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Romans 15.4. So, um, Jesus, his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit had us in mind when um, these, these texts were put down. So, we need to not limit the context simply to the original. I think another piece of it, too, is, um, you know, you, you understand a book, you understand, say, a novel way better when you get to the end. And you're saying to yourself, oh, now I understand where this is all going, right? And we know that the story is all going towards Jesus Christ, right? To what extent did the original audience and the original author know that? Hard to say, especially with regard to the original author, because it says, uh, for example, in John 12, um, that Isaiah saw my glory. Actually, it's not John 12. It's somewhere else in John. No, Isaiah saw my glory and... Um, and spoke of Jesus. Um, and so we, we know that the, the spirit of Christ in the original uh, authors was showing them things that are extraordinary about Jesus. And they were conscious of that to some extent. But we now have the full story, right? And so shame on us if we don't, you know, as we're looking at one of the very first books of the Bible, if we don't remember where it's all headed, one other piece I just want to add here, and this, this is kind of connected to what Dan said at the very beginning, like knowing God's will, is remember that the whole point of what we're after as Christians is love of God and love of neighbor. And Augustine has this great quote where he says um, in his book on biblical interpretation, he says, if you get an interpretation that does not foster love of God and love of neighbor, we know you're wrong. We know your interpretation is wrong, right? And this unfortunately can happen very easily, right? When we start getting astray into all these different little things we're curious about, or we get very theologically perfectionistic, and we think that, oh, now that I've achieved, you know, this sort of theological insight, I'm done, right? No, we, we want to see how this is promoting love of God and love of neighbor, um, and so that's a critical, critical piece, yeah. I was just going to say, in general, when we come to God's Word, um, we, should, we should see His glory. We should seek, seek to see His glory there. Mm -hmm. and, and just the, you know, the glory, the glorious thing that it is that He gave us His Word yeah. and communicated to us in the first place. Yeah, we should expect to be wowed, right? And in fact, being wowed by God's glory is what changes us. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, um, seeing the glory of Jesus, we are transformed from glory to glory. So we could keep talking about the goal of interpretation for a long time, but I just think it's important that we keep that before us um, 
as we read. So let's take a look at uh, Exodus 19. As we seek the glory of Jesus, see Jesus crucified and raised, to grow in love of God and love of neighbor. Let's read Exodus 19, then we're going to read a little snippet too from chapter 20 that's connected. So this is Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. They've just arrived. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them 
And then we have the Ten Commandments. And then I just want you to skip down to chapter 20, verse 18, which is connected to our unit. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were, were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that you, the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off. While Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay. All right, so lots to talk about here. But before we dive into kind of verses 7 and following, um, let's just remember what we um, talked about last week, particularly about the identity of Israel. What did we learn? I guess it was two weeks ago. What did we learn about the identity of Israel from verses 5 and 6. Yeah, Jeremy. That of all the people that they're God's treasured possession, you know, he owns he owns everyone and everything, but yeah, but they have a special um, a special place with God. Excellent. Yeah, so they they are um, God owns everything, but among all that he owns, Israel is his special treasure, right? Um, excellent. Other thoughts, the things we learn about who is Israel? They're his treasured possession, but they are, he says they're going to be a priesthood and a holy nation to him. Yes, a priesthood and a holy nation. Excellent, yes. Um, and that gets at their mission. Right? We never want to forget um, that the p- children of Abraham have a mission, Genesis 12, verse 3, to be a blessing to the nations. They mediate the blessing of God, and in this case, um, we'll, as we'll see, the knowledge of God to the world. So, um, God is, yes, it's, um, he's doing a very special work, saving Israel. He has redeemed them and carried them on eagles' wings. Um, they've already been redeemed. Um, and now here's how he's saying, I want you to act redeemed. I want you to embrace this identity, um, to hear my commands. This is so important that we understand God's relationship with Israel is based on grace. All the commands we're going to hear, everything we're going to hear today, we need to see it in the context of his already having saved them out of Egypt. They're already liberated. They're already freed. They're already his treasured possession. And they have a glorious identity as his royal priesthood, um, and therefore a glorious mission. And so that grace um, is so, so important. Um, we'll, we'll keep hammering this theme, but yeah. So, Pastor, I, I know this passage doesn't speak to this directly, but he calls Israel his son. Mm, and so yeah. just that incorporation as a family member, not just Excellent. a thing, a possession that you deal with, but a right. close relation. Yeah, um, Exodus 4, um, let my son go that he might worship me. Um, God embraces Israel as his child. Good. Yeah. I also, I also think it, when you talk about um, his grace, is, it really is an amazing story of that because they did nothing to deserve it. 
Yeah. And they showed that in their behavior. <laughs> That's right. All the time. Every yeah. time you turn around. So that is, a, that is an encouragement to all of us. Yeah. But also, as you look at that story, you can see it was nothing they did to deserve it. Exactly. It. Yeah, and hopefully um, you can remember back to last summer when we were looking at this um, Exodus um, 16 and 17, uh, all of the grumbling in the wilderness, it begins right away, right? <laughs> And it's going to keep happening. It's an it's a ongoing theme. And in fact, there's still more grievous sin yet to come with the golden calf, chapter 32. Um, when in Deuteronomy, God says, it's not because you're the most righteous of nations that I chose you. <laughs> By that point, you're saying, uh, yeah, <laughs> right? So God is laying his favor on them, and he's saying, you're really special to me, but it's not because of any inherent righteousness in yourself. So important that we remember that the Old Testament is every bit as much about grace as the new, right? It is the same religion, old and new. It is a religion of grace. Um, so, yeah, we need to keep, keep that in our, the forefront of our minds here. And remembering that grace allows us then to interpret rightly what we're going to see in um, this text. And what I want to do is just sort of go paragraph by paragraph, and all too briefly, but... Um, step through some key points here. Um, it can be a little bewildering, all the, the stuff we read, so if we slow down a little bit, hopefully we'll start to cohere around some key themes. So let's look at 7 through um, the beginning of verse 9, that first paragraph there, after the one we treated. It says, Moses came and, all the elders of Israel, and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words. Okay, what words? The words we were just been talking about. Right? This, these identity words, royal priesthood, holy nation. And um, said before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people, the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. What seems important about this first interchange here? What seems to be some important things? Yeah, Don. Yeah, yeah, there's something uh, important about the people seeing here, um, seeing what's going on. Yeah, verse 9 in particular, um, he says, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Um, there's some serious, like, pyrotechnics in this passage, as we'll see. Like, some pretty amazing special effect kind of stuff, right? Um, as we, we hear about, um, you know, verse 18, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke. We'll, we'll focus more on this in a moment. What does this passage tell us about the purpose of all that fire and power and everything. What's the purpose of it all? Why does he? Why does he tell us? Uh, yeah. Why is he doing it? Yeah. My thought on how God relates to us is that He does that for His grace and condescending to them to give them a visual. It's my it's kind of my thought, so that they yeah. aren't just thinking he's some, you know, that somebody's not really real. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and just look at the text. Like what, what, it's very much supporting what you're saying. What, where does he tell us, what does he tell us here about the purpose for why he's going to do what he's going to do? Yeah. He says uh, it's because he wants the people to know that it's really him, and mm -hmm. he wants them to know that Moses is his servant, and this is a way to show it. I, it kind of makes me think about the miracles in the New Testament and how that, you know, that time exactly. of extreme miracles doesn't last forever, but it, it validated the, the apostles and it validated Jesus's ministry in exactly. a very visual way. Yeah, there's an authenticating thing to this. Um, you, you look at all these miracles and everybody's like looking for Jesus. Remember in Mark, uh, what is it, Mark chapter 2? Uh, yeah, I think it's chapter 2 or chapter 1, where you, they're all looking, everybody's looking for you, and he says, I, should, I now need to go to the next town, right? And, uh, and, and what's the point here? He says, the purpose why, for why I've come is to preach, and the miracles are supporting the preaching by authenticating. Yeah, Dale? Um, I just noticed something that I don't think I've ever noticed before, but um, here God said he was going to voice and they were going to hear his voice, but then later on, after the Ten Commandments, they were like, don't let us, don't let a, don't let him speak to us, <laughs> yeah. don't let him speak to us. But here is God willing to come down and actually say, they're going to hear my voice. And they're like, yeah. no, we don't want to hear your voice. That's something I don't think yeah. I've ever noticed before until just now as I awesome. was reading that. Yeah, I was hoping, hoping we could talk about this. Um, he says, the whole point is, I want you to hear my voice, Right? And by the way, the hearing is really important. Um, you know, you, you didn't see anything. You didn't see the form of God. Obviously, they saw the smoke and everything. You didn't see the form of God. You heard his voice. Um, Deuteronomy 4 will make a lot of hay out of this um, in the sense of, like, the way God wants us to know him is by listening. Um, he, he wants them to hear. And yet, as you're right to point out, um, chapter 20, this little section I read there, said, uh, we don't want to listen, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the, the amount of depth in this is so rich. Um, one of my friends at Wheaton did his entire dissertation on that observation, Dale, <laughs> and what is going on in 2018 and following. We won't go that deep today. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, um, the whole point of... Um, Moses as a mediator. We're going to hopefully camp out on that in a moment. But um, getting back to this section, you know, the purpose being so that they would not just believe the Lord, which is your point, Dom, that they would know that he's for real, right? Hopefully by now after the plagues, they'd believe that he's for real. <laughs> hopefully by now seeing the, the pillar of fire and of cloud uh, would, would convince the realness of, of the Lord. But, but also so that they might, look at verse 9, right there at the end of that paragraph, that they might believe you, Moses, forever. This is an authentication of Moses as well. Um, the other instance of believe, the, word, the, the verb believe in Exodus is Exodus 14.31, when they had just made it through the Red Sea, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, the Lord. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Right? So what God's doing 
in this whole sequence here is authenticating not only himself as the true God, but also Moses as his mediator. Why is that so important? Why is it so important that Moses also be authenticated? Yeah. Because Moses is a type of the one to come. He's an image of Christ. Yeah, he's going to be a very important image, as we'll hopefully get to talk about in a moment. Yes. What, all, what else um, would be an important, a reason why God is so concerned to authenticate Moses as the legit uh, mediator of God's word so that they would believe him? Yeah, Mike. there in a cloud or a pillar of fire uh, with, some, with some kind of miracle to back up everything Moses says all yes. the time. So he's yeah. leaving the people with, here's my man, you know, listen to him. Exactly right. Yeah, and um, there's one of the key themes in Exodus and elsewhere is the writing down of the revelation, right? And so the revelation is going to get written down, and we need to remember that these words are have been authenticated, right? Um, these are legitimately from God. Um, and so, yeah. Yeah, and, and not only that, but think about it. Um, what God's going to speak through Moses, some of these things are going to be massively challenging and countercultural. Some of these things are going to be very challenging things. Interestingly, one of the most challenging things will be the Sabbath. Um, one of the first people who are put to death for sin in the Bible, is a man carrying sticks on the Sabbath, right? And so what's clearly going on, what's going on here? They're, they're struggling to, to receive this as really what God is telling them to do, right? And so what God is doing here is saying, look, when you're struggling with, do we really need to believe this? Is this actually legitimately from God? Remember the authentication. Remember that this is, this is God's true servant, Okay, let's press forward to verses 9, and uh, the second half of verse 9, um, the next paragraph. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. And actually, I'm sorry, I just realized there's one theme I wanted to make sure I at least said from 7 through 9. Um, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. That's what the people say. Striking, right? Because they're, they're going to actually say it um, again two more times at the um, end of the uh, covenant sequence. Um, in chapter 24, verses 3 and 7, they will say once again after they receive the entire book of the covenant, um, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. What's that saying? In a sense, it's saying verses 5 through 6, that initial revelation of here's who you are and here's who I want, what, what I want you to be. That is the covenant in a nutshell. Like the entire thing that they're about to hear, um, chapters 20 through 23, can all be distilled into 19, 5 through 6. I rescued you on eagle's wings. You're my holy people. Listen to me. All of that is, in essence, the covenant. God taking his people for himself and the people um, loving God in response they have said here, we're going to do this. 
it's, it's the moment here where the people say, I do, right? Remember, Moses, uh, the Sinai is the wedding of God with his people. We, we see this verified in Jeremiah 2, Hosea 2, elsewhere. Um, this is God getting married to his people. God saying, I'm going to give myself to you. They then say, we will give ourselves to you. You will be my people. I will be your God. Both parties are willing here. They're saying, we're going to be faithful to the covenant. Okay, so then nine and following, the Lord said to Moses, um, and there's this whole, I'm going to have to go a little faster now, but um, there's this whole piece here where he's saying, set limits, don't come up here. Take care not to go to, up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. And in fact, the way you put him to death, you can't even touch the guy who's touched the mountain. Did you notice that? Uh, no hand shall touch that guy. He needs to either be stoned or shot, in other words, with an arrow. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. Okay, so don't touch the mountain. But then look at this, verse 13 at the end. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. How do those things go together? Don't touch the mountain, you're going to die. When the trumpet blast sounds, you shall come up. How do those go together? Were they, in fact, allowed up onto the mountain? Yeah, to, they, they're allowed onto the foot of the mountain. That's right. Yeah. This is why I brought the whiteboard out, actually. Um, we'll draw a little mountain here, right? Here's the camp, right? And, you know, don't even come onto the foot of the mountain or you will die, right? But then eventually they do come to the foot of the mountain. Moses goes all the way up to the top. What's going on with that? Why does he say, whoever touches the mountain shall die, but then when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountains, God's instructions. <laughs> yeah, that's another connection. Yeah, um, Jesus comes back at the sound of a trumpet. All right, well, uh, you're all just kind of staring at me, so I'll just, I'll just say, um, the point is, no one's allowed up on the mountain until... I tell you, you can't come until I say you can come. How will you know you can come? Sound of the trumpet, right? And what's happening here? What do they, what do they have to do first? They need to, yes, consecrate themselves, right? Um, look at the consecration process. Verse 10, consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments, be ready for the third day. At the end of this, there's also the piece about not having relations. Do not go near a woman, verse 15. Or yeah, 15. And at the end, what's happening here? What, what's God uh, wanting before they come? Yeah. Yeah. Prepared hearts and bodies and lives, right? This is no small thing to enter into the presence of the living God, right? Um, th this is not something where you can just sort of waltz in and say, 
hey, pop, you know, <laughs> we've talked about this in a sermon, right? Um, no, this is the holy, holy, holy God, right? And so God is impressing on them the importance of holiness before you can go and meet with God. And let's just, let's just ponder this just a little bit more because um, this is something that has totally been lost in modern Christianity, um, is all but disappeared, the sense of the awesomeness and holiness of God. Um, remember what everybody does who encounters God. They fall on their faces and say, please don't kill me, right? Isaiah, um, plenty of others. Just, just just, look again. We're going to skip ahead a little bit because time's getting a little so short the here. Pastor, just really fast. Oh, yeah. And even the passage like later on that said, don't let God speak to us anymore, guys. That's right. Yeah, that's <laughs> Don't right. let God speak to us. No, Moses, you handle this. That, that's exactly the same theme in, in 20. When they hear all of this, they say, we don't want God to speak to us. Even if he speaks to us, we're going to die, right? Now, just try to picture this, everybody. Try to, try to just let your imagination understand what, what is happening here. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. Okay, think about that. Have you ever been out in a field and it's like serious thunderstorm? They're just camping. And a thick cloud on the mountain, the darkness is so thick that it's, it's like the absolute blackness. And a very loud trumpet blast. And here, uh, the word translated trumpet, it's really not, uh, don't, don't picture like, you know, the three-valved uh, instrument of our modern day. Um, think of the, you know, the big shofar, the big um, ram's horn, you know, like the huge, big sound, right? And it's very loud. So everybody trembles. People, um, and he brought the people out of the camp to meet God. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Okay, so the people have come to the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the, uh, that word kiln is only used four times in uh, Hebrew Bible. And the... One of the other times is Genesis 19.28. It's actually, ESV doesn't translate it as kiln. They use furnace in this one. But um, he looked down on toward, this is Abraham, looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So think about like, you know, all the fire and brimstone coming down on the valley of uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah is or was, and just huge, just gushing smoke, okay? Um, okay, and then the whole mountain trembles greatly. So you now earthquake, right? And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, so imagine that, it's already very loud, and then it just gets louder and louder, and it says, Moses spoke, and the Lord answered him in thunder. What would you be feeling? <laughs> right? Yeah, Mike. Is this, uh, 
analogous maybe to the Lord's Supper or, or even more broadly to Sunday worship in some way. Yeah, uh, excellent. How, what makes you ask that? He's asking, is this analogous to the Lord's Supper or to Sunday worship? Well, I'm just thinking, I mean, we're, we're meeting God, uh, preparing our hearts for it as we should. Yeah. Um, although the difference, I guess, would be Christ dying in our place, taking any judgment. Excellent. Um, yeah, save that thought, because that is where we are headed. Okay. Save that thought. But that is exactly right. And that's, that's part of where, like, once you start to realize the entire Bible is one religion, and you start to realize, hey, the Old Testament is a witness to Jesus, helps us to know Jesus better, helps us to know ourselves better, then you don't, you don't read the Old Testament with this kind of disconnect saying, oh, how interesting and antiquated, right? Then you start reading it like, whoa, what implications does this have for us? We're also a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What implications does this have for us in our worship, right? And even just uh, the, the point we were just making, nobody comes to the mountain unless they die. Don't even touch it or you will be put to death, right? And then when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you can come up. Even that tells us something. What does it tell us about worship? Yeah. Well, I was just connecting the fire, God coming down in fire with, I think it's either, I don't, have my Bible right now, but the, is it First Thessalonians or Second Thessalonians where it talks about Jesus being revealed in flaming fire? Yes. So I just think that there's a connection there between there just the, the holiness and the judgment that comes with that against everything that is not holy. Yeah, in fact, um, all of the phenomena that we see here, um, fire, thunder, lightning, earthquake, Thick darkness, that's all what we, what's called theophany language. And we spent an entire Sunday school class last year talking about theophanies in the Bible, God coming and appearing. The, the greatest of all theophanies is the second coming, right? And so it's no surprise that all of this imagery is straight through Revelation and the, the descriptions of Jesus is coming again in glory and in judgment, um, and also when he died, that's right, it's the beginning of the day of the Lord. Uh, remember, we've talked about this as well, that um, the cross is the first, it's, it's the beginning of the end times judgment, which amazingly first fell upon the Son of God. Son of God receives the end times judgment first. Um, excellent. Just my point, uh, and the question I was asking before this was, nobody comes here unless you die. You don't enter God's presence unless you are invited. God is a holy God. You don't just waltz in there. And so we need a call to worship. In the beginning of worship service, when I say to you, grace, mercy, and peace, who calls us to worship, and, and then I read to you, what am I doing? I'm giving you the warrant for even coming into God's presence. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a trivial part of the service. It's like, if we didn't have that, that call to worship, you have no business coming, right? And again, there's grace here all throughout. I mean, on the one hand, it's like, whoa, that's very off-putting. Well, there's grace here too, right? Because um, Romans 5, um, Jesus Christ is this, the one who gives us our introduction into this grace in which we stand, right? They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. We now stand in the grace of Jesus in the throne room of God. 
Um, good. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's bring out just a couple other things real fast. Um, and uh, there's so much more in this text. But um, interesting, right, that um, the people are allowed here. And then he says, who gets to come to the top of the mountain? Only Moses, right? Moses gets to go to the top. But later, we hear that he says, bring your brother Aaron with you, Uh, verse 24, but only Moses is allowed to the very top, and we'll also hear in chapter 24 that God will allow a portion, the elders here, and the um, sons Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, eh, they're allowed here. Fascinating that when we think about the structure of the tabernacle, oh man, there we go, like that, okay, um, we have in the tabernacle the court. Who's allowed to come up to the court? All clean worshipers. Right? So if you're in Israel and you have kept the cleanliness laws, things like abstaining from relations and other, other aspects of the cleanliness laws, right? You're allowed into here to bring your offering. Can you go into the holy? A place or the most holy place? No. Who's allowed in here? In the place where there's the table of the showbread and the lamp. Um, The priests, right? As we'll see, Aaron and his son. So people, priests. Who's allowed into the most holy place where there's the Ark of the Covenant? Only the high priest and only once a year. Right? What's the implication? What, what's the implication of this pattern? About what does this tell us about the nature of the tabernacle? Yes. It's like Mount Sinai. In other words, like this. And isn't it amazing, right? What's at the top, the fire and the smoke? What comes down in Exodus 40 at the climax of the building of the tabernacle? The fire and the smoke here, right? What's the point? God is giving in the tabernacle a portable mountain that will be a way in which they can continue to relive the blessing of Sinai, namely fellowship with God, while they're wandering through the wilderness. Pretty awesome, right? And that's going to be a really awesome part of what we'll look at the tabernacle later. As a, some, this is simply a sneak preview of awesome things yet to come. Yes? A temporary mountain until they get to the next mountain, Zion. Until they get to the next mountain, Zion, when they build a permanent structure that follows this, namely um, the, uh, the, the temple. That's exactly right, which follows the same pattern. Now, here's the sort of the million-dollar big connection now. This is just sort of leading me up to something really important. 
Hopefully you got in this passage a very ironic sense of the, on the one hand, God's brought them to this mountain for fellowship, right? For covenant fellowship. And yet, he holds them at arm's length, right? Don't come here. And then even like at at the end, right, um, he says, verse 21, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through, look to the, to, to the Lord to look, and many of them perish, right? Like, they're going to die if they come anywhere clo- any closer. And Moses is like, well, you've already said we can't, right? <laughs> right. So, really emphasizing, stay away. What's going on here? Because if we understand, on the one hand, the desire for fellowship, but then at the other hand, the impedance to fellowship, namely, only Moses gets to really be with God, we'll start to understand some really big stuff. Yes? Uh, I think God is trying to save the people from himself because his glory will kill them. Yes. So that's a key, key idea. God is protecting them in his love, protecting them from himself. And why is it, you already, you already kind of said it, um, but why is it that they are at the risk of death? Like, what? why is it that God, their maker, who loves them, who just redeemed them from, from Egypt, who's made all these amazing promises to them, why is it that God would be fatal? Because God is perfect and, and they're not, and uh, God's perfection and glory and holiness is so amazing that uh, if they come near, it will kill them. Yeah. Yeah, and his, his perfection is so great. His holiness is so consuming, right? Um, yeah, Anna? I just had a thought about the um, tearing of the temple uh, curtain into after Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe that's... That's very much connected to where we're going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Um, Before we we say that, though, I I, I think it's so important what you're bringing out um, because this is going to to be so important. Isn't it striking that even though the people are not worthy, they're not able to enter God's presence without being consumed, they lack, in other words, the holiness to stand before God, that God nevertheless makes a way for them to still interact with him. And what is that way? Obviously, the tabernacles were a piece of it, but what is the way emphasized in this passage for having fellowship with God, interaction with God, even though they're so unworthy? Yeah, I hear it up here. Moses. Exactly right, yeah, yeah. Moses, he's going back and forth. Do you, under, do you see that over and over again? He reports what the people say to God. God then, they, then he just goes the other direction, says to the people what God says. Back and forth, back and forth. Moses is a mediator. He mediates not just the knowledge of God, but the very presence of God. As we'll see later passages, he glows with the glory that he received himself from God. So there's this glorious role of Moses here as mediator, and the people want this. Um, and, uh, and, and there's this tension, right? This is a priestly people. You are a, you 
know, a holy priesthood. And yet at the same time, the very basic thing that priests are supposed to be able to do, namely go into the presence of God, offering things to God, they're not doing, but in a sense, it's being offloaded to Moses. Moses is where that priestly privilege is located. He'll pass that on to Aaron and his sons. So God created them for covenant fellowship. He wants full fellowship with them. He's given them this priestly identity. And yet at the same time, the holiness of God is so vast and the sinfulness of the people is so weighty and terrible and foul that they cannot truly have fellowship with each other. Now, uh, yeah. Thinking about what Anna said about the curtain being torn after Jesus died, which then ended not being able to approach God's throne. So this mm -hmm. touches for me this this grace of God. First of all, here, no one's died for their sins yet so that they can approach the throne mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. Um, this isn't like an almost already not yet situation also. Yeah, yeah Where right. you're my people, but my, I haven't sent my meet, my my number one mediator for you mm -hmm. yet yeah. so you can't touch me yet is, that's the thoughts that are going yeah and as we're going to see um 24 will have blood there will be the blood of the covenant yeah the name moses means drawn out right drawn mm -hmm. out of the waters yeah and the story the origin story of moses is one who passed across the waters and survived right in the waters an image of flood and judgment so really yeah. the one who's going into the mountain is the one who's been drawn out of a yeah, excellent. The judgment of death. So it's a picture as well yeah. to the cross. Yeah, Moses has already, in a sense, uh, passed through the waters of judgment. Yeah. Jacob, going to the top of the mountain, unlike the rest of the people, is the reason he's able to go to the... Well, I think I know the answer, but is the reason because he's holier than the other people, or is it because uh, God, the, the, the grace purchased in the cross is reaching back yeah. in history to Moses. I mean, is there any grace in the Old Testament apart from the cross of Christ? Oh, yeah, great question. Um, excellent question. I mean, I, I think on one hand, um, you know, part of the, all the stories of Moses struggling with sin at the beginning, you know, chapter 2 and everything, is to bring out that he really is no different from the rest of Israel, right? He is a sinner, too. Um, so on the one hand, he... he, he um, pictures to us God's grace and, and the grace that will come to us through our mediator, Jesus Christ. But just like every other Old Testament saint who pictures Jesus, he is himself in need of Jesus. And so Romans 3 talks about God overlooking former sins, um, the sins of the Old Covenant people, on account of what? On account of the blood of Jesus, which was yet to be offered. Um, that's a really important thing. There is no grace. Just like you said, there is no grace apart from Jesus. Yeah. So I'm probably jumping here, but Moses was a mediator, but there was also a sacrificial system associated with the tabernacle, and that's why you needed a mediator like that. When Christ died, he was the ultimate sacrifice. Yes. He is our mediator. There are no more sacrifices, and that's why that is right. why the curtain got torn into. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, as we'll see, um, the only way you can enter into these places is with blood. Um, and, so, and so we'll see um, that emphasis on sacrifice. And indeed, as you all are bringing out, 
the great thing that has happened since this um, is the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And let's just reflect on what that means. The sacrifice of Jesus has been offered. So on the one hand, there's continuity between what we see in the Old Testament and where we are today. It's the same fundamental religion. And yet there's also discontinuity as well. And in order to be good interpreters of the Old Testament, we have to recognize both the continuity and the discontinuity. So here, Hebrews 10, is the discontinuity. Verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Whoa. The holy places? We, brothers, all of us, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Again, the ripping of the, the curtain, right? That is, through his flesh. How do we enter into the most holy places? Not in some copy of the heavenly sanctuary, but in the actual heavenly sanctuary. Through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, namely Jesus, who has entered the holy place, and then instead of coming back out again, he turns around and sits down at the throne. In other words, in, on the tabernacle, like mercy seat, he sits there. That's what Hebrews 1 said. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. Very different, right, from stay away. Don't you dare come here or you'll die. Right? Instead, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, you're not going to die. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our, our bodies washed with pure water. Amazing. When you understand the discontinuity, and there's lots of it in this instance, you realize, wow, what Moses alone was able to do on the mountain, what the priest, high priest alone was able to do, in the tabernacle and temple, we now, all of us, get to do because of the cleansing blood of Jesus, because that's how holy Jesus has made us. Amazing. And so the Old Testament, it's revealing us to us this sort of, dis, you know, this sort of distancing of God so that then when the distance is closed and God says, now you can come, we can appreciate how truly awesome that is. Um, it is an awesome thing that God has given to us in this present time. So when we are about to worship half hour from now, and we're about to enter into the most holy places, you have not come to Mount Sinai, Hebrews 12, but you have come to the heavenly Zion. When we enter into the heavenly Zion through the blood of Jesus with the call to worship, I hope that you're wowed. I hope that you're awestruck. I hope that you have a sense of, I have no business being here. I should be dead right now. But Jesus' blood is that powerful. <laughs> He's cleansed me that much. And when you do that, when you feel that, when you feel that sense of awe, thank the Lord for the Old Testament in Exodus 19. And remember that you are worthy. Don't, don't, this is my big application. Don't think to yourself, I'm such a sinner. I can't possibly do this. Y'all, you guys are all holy. I'm not. Don't think that. You're not allowed to think that because of the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the Old Testament, which is 
a glorious revelation of Jesus in his glory. We pray that as we contemplate this passage and your great holiness and the way in which you made it possible for us to now enter into your holy presence through the blood of a better sacrifice, that, Lord, we would increase in love of God and also love of neighbor. That, Lord, as we contemplate the awesomeness of going into your presence, into your throne room and not dying, that, Lord, we would have a sense of the glory of what we receive, the grace that we have received and that we want others to receive that grace too. Help us, Lord, to be a holy people who rejoices in our holiness through worship. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just real quick, a little um, businessy kind of announcement. Uh, just clarification that um, you told me this, Mike. Um, the, the nurse